He is the great commander, and we do have the victory. And so uh, we began the trumpet judgments. And so uh, I thought, well, this seems like a good place to end. We finished chapter 8. And many people said, hey, you got to get, get us through at least the last of the trumpets. And I was thinking about doing that, and then I began to realize it would probably take a good three or four weeks to do that uh, in a fair manner. And, uh, but I did, as I began to read uh, into chapter 9, I realized uh, it began to talk about something called the bottomless pit, which uh, really many people equate with hell. Uh, I began thinking about the topic of hell and how that really it's not much heard of anymore. People don't, I mean, it's rare. Uh, you probably maybe never even heard a message on hell in the last decade or two. Uh, maybe if you're older, you might have heard one way back when, but uh, it's really a disappearing doctrine for the most part. And I began thinking about that, and then on that very day I was thinking about all that. A Christian man, I feel like he was a, may have been certainly a believer, at least he professed to be. He said, you know, honestly, he said, I don't know that I really think that uh, hell is real. He said, because, you know, God's just so loving and uh, the circumstance didn't allow me to give much of a talk, uh, much of an answer to him. But, you know, the thought is uh, there are so many people that in that same concept. In fact, a research group uh, discovered that 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. But less than 1% think that they're going to go to hell. <laughs> There's a tremendous divergence about the subject of heaven and hell. The topic of a literal hell, eternal punishment, is a challenging subject for many people. In fact, uh, in Newsweek magazine, in the uh, great uh, Newsweek, <laughs> and I say that in quotes, uh, they uh, said, and I quote, today, hell is theology's H-word, a subject too trait for serious scholarship. Gordon Kaufman, who is a prominent professor at Harvard Divinity School, said that really over the last decade or two, there's been a theological transformation. He said there's really no future in Christian theology for heaven or hell. Today, it's about uh, being relational and practical. And yet, the Bible is quite different than that. In fact, every single New Testament author mentions either by topic or by direct mention hell. And of the 12 times the word Gehenna is used, which is actually the most prominent Greek word for hell, 11 of them were spoken by none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest, the topic of hell is uh, it is hard to wrap our head around. Uh, it's difficult to hear. It's difficult to begin to process the thought that maybe someone I love is either in hell or they're going to hell. It's not an easy topic to think about. And I will tell you, it's not an easy topic to study, nor is it an easy topic to preach. Because today uh, we think about the idea of a conscious punishment, the idea of um, this literal hell, 
Many people feel like it's just symbolic, and there's so many different feelings about it. But the fact is, the person who talked most about hell is the most loving, grace-filled person ever. And I am thankful that he is the one that gave us the biggest volume of information on what hell is like. You'd say, why does the Bible talk about hell? Well, I think the first reason, maybe the first reason we ought to talk about it is because it ought to be a wake-up call. Um, You know, when I try to wake up in the morning, uh, usually I just kind of wake up at about five o'clock or so, sometimes earlier, sometimes a little bit later, but that's pretty much the time. But when I have to wake up at two or one, maybe for a flight or something, I need a wake-up call. And I don't put on a little bit of music. I put on something blaring. That's what the teaching of hell is. It is a blaring wake-up call. I think it not only wakes up the lost, but I think it wakes up the people who are believing. Not only, I think, is uh, the teaching of hell important to talk about because it's a wake-up call, but I don't think... I also think it's important because I don't know of any greater way to understand the love of Jesus than by what he redeems us from. I mean, you talk about the love of God. Teaching about hell preaches the love of God because he is the one who said, don't go there. I beg of you. He pleaded with people. He preached to people. He gave stories. He told them. He gave it all he had, please do not take chance of dying and going to hell. It is a forever choice. It is not something you get to do over. It, you must deal with this issue. Jesus was insistent about the topic of hell. And so uh, we're going to study a passage in Luke 16. And uh, by God's grace, we'll do it in two weeks, and then we'll have a wonderful conference, our creation conference. Let's all bow for a word of prayer, if you would, this morning, as we look into this very important but sobering topic. Father, I thank you for the uh, topic of the book of Revelation, as it's led us to consider the bottomless pit, or more specifically, hell. Lord, I thank you for a church that receives truth people who love the Word. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help me to bring everything to bear these next two weeks that needs to be said. And I pray that, Lord, even if I plan to say something, but I'm not supposed to, I pray you just block my mind. I pray the Lord our people would receive this, Lord, with grace. They would understand it with eyes of Scripture, and that, Lord, you would just give us a, a real understanding of your wonderful word. And Lord, give us, God, a newfound understanding and uh, passion for your love and for the lost, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at the first couple of verses here, which we are calling a summation or an overview. Let's read verses 19 through 21 together, if you would, please. Now, um, some have called this a parable. It's possible, but uh, as far as we know, no parable ever had a specific named person. So we, uh, in fact, believe this is not a parable. Verse 19, let's read it together. Ready, begin. 19, 20, and 21. Ready, begin. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, 
and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We have a man who had risen to the apex of society. This man was living his best life. As far as we know, he was a good man, a moral man. He was well-to-do. He was very wealthy. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. Nothing wrong with using your wealth to bless people and bless God's Word. It's a wonderful thing. He was very, very wealthy. Lived in a beautiful home. He had it going his way. As far as we know, he was one of the most successful men in Israel. This man had it all. Contrasted by another fellow. The Bible simply calls him a beggar. A beggar by the name of Lazarus. By all outward appearances, he was the most unsuccessful man. You have a very successful man. Now you have an unsuccessful man. Really, he had to be a beggar as his source of income. Not by any uh, character, loss of character or bad character on his part. He just, uh, as we see here, he is very sick. In fact, uh, the fact that they threw him at the gate indicates that he might have been a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. Probably couldn't work. And uh, he must not have had much family. And so there he was. And in fact, according to a common Jewish thought, even theology, not Bible theology, I'll mind you, but according to their common theology, a man who was in that case probably was cursed by God. And unfortunately, there are people that still have that kind of concept that if you're rich, you're blessed by God. If you're poor, uh, you are not blessed by God or even cursed. But I want you to look at these verses. Notice what it says. First of all, it says there was a certain rich man. He was a certain rich man. He was not just any rich man. He was certain. I mean, this was a man who was very notable. He would be uh, uh, what we would look at and say, boy, there is your Bill Gates or uh, Jeff Bezos. I mean, he, he was a certain rich man. Jesus took time out to describe him. So let's think about that. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. The word clothed there is not just the word clothed. It's uh, the actually sense of the verb there is that he was habitually clothed. In other words, he didn't just wear his finest once in a while, like some might on a big, you know, pomp and circumstance today, you know, maybe the king was coming or something. No, he dressed this way every day. Prada shoes. He had the finest clothing of the day. It says he was dressed in purple. Now, purple uh, was a, a great, uh, beautiful clothing to wear in those days. They would take wool, not just any wool, not just ruffle uh, wool loomed together, but this was fine wool. The thread count was very high. It was processed and processed and processed wool, take all the itchiness out. And to the part, it was like this um, uh, jacket I'm wearing here. This is a wool, and uh, yet it's very light and, 
This has been processed. That's the way that wool was. They would take clay and they would put it in a pot and they would scrub it and they would get all the stuff out of it. It was very, very difficult to do. And as such, it, because it took so much time, it was very expensive. But it was not just wool. Uh, actually, what they would typically do is make it white, so white that it was almost gleaming. Then they would dye it a certain color. But the most beautiful of all was the purple. It was a purple made from a little shellfish, Tyrrhenian murex, from the area of Tyre. Uh, you may remember Lydia was a seller of purple. Obviously, when you would take uh, this little shellfish, they didn't get a lot from it, but boy, what they did get, it was just absolutely powerful dye. It was bright. It was luminescent. And so when someone had this purple garment, this was a pricey. Nobody could afford it typically, only the most elite. And then the Bible said he had also fine linen underneath. Fine linen was cotton. Cotton the best came from Egypt, even today. Egypt still has a tremendous uh, linen. So it came from, uh, the, it was a high thread count. And so here he had this outer garment of purple wool uh, dyed with this shellfish. He had this beautiful um, uh, inner garment that he wore. And then it says very uh, clearly that he fared sumptuously. Now that means the best of all the food, but it also means joyously. He was very happy at what he was enjoying. I mean, he was having the best life, the finest wines, the best foods, you name it. This man was top dog. And then it says there was also a certain beggar by the name of Lazarus. He was laid at the gate. Actual word laid there is the word for throwing. So he was basically balled up in a ball, <laughs> thrown there. The idea was they had hoped maybe because he was really, uh, it was uh, dealing with him was very difficult. He was in such a way they couldn't hardly deal with him. He had sores all over him, probably because he was a quadriplegic, couldn't move. And so he had these bed sores. He might have had some other kind of ulcer or something. But I mean, nobody knew what to do with him. He couldn't work. He didn't have any family. Caring for him took uh, 24-hour care. This was a difficult situation. They put him at the gate of this rich man, hoping that maybe he could do something, maybe with his resources, maybe with his connections. Because he was so successful, perhaps he would be able to do something about that. It's interesting in this story, however, that the rich man was never named, but the poor man was. There's something about that. Lazarus was the name of the poor man. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Eliezer. The word Eliezer, of course, the word El, meaning God. Eliezer means God is helped, or Lazarus, helped by God. What a name, helped by God. And the Bible says he went straight to heaven when he died. He was escorted there with the best escort you could ever have, the angels. And so he was helped by God. Thank God we have a name in heaven. Amen. This morning, I may not have a name on earth, but with God, my name is helped by God. And by the way, that's the only way anybody gets to heaven. They are helped by the grace of God. And that's not something any of us really like to think about. In fact, the average American doesn't like to 
concept of grace because, you know, we, we're not on welfare. We're not on spiritual welfare. You know, we can make it on our own. We don't want anybody hand, any handouts. But the fact is, if we're going to get to heaven, we need to be like Eliezer. We need to be helped by God. And so we have Eliezer. Now, here we have this uh, rich man. We have this poor man. The rich man, royal clothing, wealthy, the best of clothing, the best of everything, best of the food, best of society. He had a great life, at least horizontally. He had nothing apparently vertical, but boy, horizontally, everything was going his way. We have another extreme. We have a man whose life was the worst possible life. One who was the best, one who was the worst. He had not any food. In fact, he wanted food from the rich man's table. Now, uh, look at verse 21. It says, desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, that's not just a, uh, a little story. That's actually something they did back then. In fact, whenever there was a big banquet, uh, people who worked at the banquet hoped for the leftovers. And then others who were very poor would actually get the gleanings from the ground because people, when they would eat, they would throw, you know, bones and other things underneath the table. In fact, even half-eaten bread. And it was not like today. You wouldn't go to someone's house and throw your stuff under the table. You might give it to the dog, but, uh, you know, you don't throw it under the table. Back then, that's exactly what they did. It was not considered uncouth. In fact, it was considered uncouth to leave all the leftovers on the table. They wanted a clean table. And so when those banquets were over, everybody would be allowed to come in. They would glean that. This man was hoping to even get the gleanings. He probably wouldn't be able to get up and get it, but that's what he wanted. He wanted to get there. Uh, leftovers. I love leftovers. And uh, I, it's my favorite thing. I, I just, uh, I love them. I even love leftover coffee. Uh, the other day I was handing one of my kids, I heated up some coffee I had. And they said, Dad, could we just make some coffee? I said, well, yeah, we can, but this is leftover coffee. This is the best, because I, I, I have a percolator. How many know what a percolator is? Okay, all right. Now, I know about two-thirds of the audience don't even know what a percolator is. And uh, my younger ones look at that thing and say, well, what do you do with it? And uh, you take the top off, you put coffee in it, and it goes round and round. And uh, anyway, um, they, they want it to come down one time fresh. Man, that's not coffee. That's just uh, drips. But boy, percolator, it just goes around about 30 times until it's good and strong. That's, anyway, I like leftovers. So I, 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 now I understand this fella, he wanted the leftovers. Anything he could get, he's okay with. He was a beggar. All right, now let's transition in the story. Verses 22 and 23. Now everything changes. Everything changes. <laughs> and death has a way of doing that. A man went to his doctor to find out why he's been having such severe headaches. The doctor ran some tests and after a few hours called the man into the office. He said, I'm sorry, I have terrible news for you. Your condition is terminal. Oh no, he said, how long do I have? Ten. Ten what? Ten days, ten months, ten years? The doctor said, nine, eight, seven, six the fact is, you know, it might be closer than we think. And that's what was going on here. I mean, there was a huge change. Look at verse 22. And it came to pass 
that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now there was no burial for brother Lazarus. No burial at all. It doesn't say that he was buried. It just says that he died. In fact, it's most likely the case is they took him. Actually, most people are probably glad he was dead because he was such a drain on society. He was probably placed in a, a heap where they would take indigent people and bury them outside the a city there. And so he was just cast off. Had no burial. Nobody talked at his funeral. If there was anybody, maybe one or two people, I mean, no kind of uh, send-off at all. No, no respect. I mean, uh, sad. But uh, he, had, he was uh, helped by God, but not by man. His name, Lazarus. How different. What a tremendous reversal, however. He goes from the poorest to the richest. He goes from the lowest to the highest. And then we have the rich man, the well-to-do man. Again, I make note, it wasn't because he was rich that he had this situation. He was just lost. He rejected the gospel story. He had a wonderful burial. And uh, it was actually quite surprising that he died like he did. Not because people don't die, but because he probably had the finest medical care anybody could have. But he apparently had been sick for a while, or maybe he just got sick quickly. But he had the finest anybody could have. He lived in a beautiful home. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't have any kind of weather-related illness. He had the best medicine. He had the best care. He ate the best food. He, this man had it all, and yet he still died. And the fact is, folks, it makes no difference how rich we are or poor we are. The fact is death comes to all. It is said that Ludwig van Beethoven, one of the greatest uh, composers of all time, and we still sing many of his songs, especially around Christmas and Easter, an amazing composer. Ludwig van Beethoven wrote for the glory of God. But he also was a troubled man. In fact, when you read his history, he, he really struggled with the concept of God and the things that were going on in his life. It is said that when he was on his deathbed, he shook his fist at heaven and said, I need more time. I need more time. The fact is he got no more time because in heaven, or I mean on earth, when it's our time, there's no more time. You know, sometimes someone wants, they're going to retire and they have a countdown clock. Have you seen those? Or maybe they're going to get married and they have a countdown clock. I think it'd probably do wise for us to get a countdown clock and put it at 70, 70 years old. Oh, I've got six more years, or I've got two more years, or for some of you, you've been blessed, and thank God you're way past the countdown, amen, and thank God for it. But I will say the fact is, all of us need to realize where we're at. I remember a few years ago, we had this Christian brother who specialized in time management. He said, I encourage everybody to take their life and to put it into seven 10-year increments, and so I want you to, I want you to take this graph and he said, I want you to make seven marks on the paper, seven sections. He said, now I want you to color in where you are to this point. And I was about, I was about 60 at that point. I, covered, I colored that thing all the way over. I thought, good night, I'm almost to the finish line. Look at all those things. Look at all the black marks there. But 
Folks, we need to have a countdown clock to remind us that, folks, death is coming. Look what it says in verse 22. The rich man was, excuse me, the poor man, Lazarus, was carried away by angels into Abraham's bosom. Carried by the angels. Now that alone would have been a, a jolt to anybody who was looking at down their noses at Lazarus. Carried by the angels? How could that be? They're listening to Jesus tell about this man. Carried by angels? How could he be carried by angels? Isn't he cursed? Look at how poor he is. Look at how sick he is. But he was carried by the angels. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10 says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that their angels, their angels, do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. This is the verse why some people feel like we have guardian angels, their angels. And so, if that's true, Lazarus was carried by his angel, and they were just waiting for the time. It says they behold the face of God, just waiting for the conductor to say, go get him. By the wave of the hand, go get him. And our angels are there. They will escort to heaven. That's one of their jobs as they take the spirit they apparently are part of that transition from a physical body to a spirit body. Notice what it says. He was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. Very strange concept, a strange phraseology. It's certainly an old English one. It's the only place in Scripture where it's there. It just simply means, really, that he went to where Abraham was. He went to his side. Bosom is the word side, a chest area. So he he went to where his chest was. He went to right close to him, a bosom buddy. He went to where Abraham was. Now, I know there's a theological thought out there that there's this big thing called uh, paradise, and half of it, you know, is the bad side. The other half is the good side. Sometimes people call that all Abraham's bosom. Maybe there's something to that. What we do know is Scripture says we are absent from the body, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and present with the Lord. So glory to God. Here is Brother Lazarus. He died. He was taken by the angels. They were thinking, how could that be? To, to Abraham. The Jewish people are like, Abraham? How could this man go to the father of the Jews? I mean, we're talking about the hero of the nation of Israel. But he was honored, greatly honored. They're scratching their head. Uh, we don't get it. Verse 23. But the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now the transition. Now we've left this life and we've gone to the afterlife. Now I know that people don't believe in the afterlife, but Scripture is very clear that there is an afterlife. Now, there are many today who don't believe in an afterlife. Sadly, many of them come from the so-called Christian circle. Marty Sampson, who is a writer for Hillsong. Hillsong, the great uh, church down there in Australia, has produced many wonderful songs, but uh, this man has lost his faith. He was a writer of their songs, and he said this just last year, God, if God is love, how could he send four billion people to a place called hell, all because they don't believe in Jesus? 
Joshua Harris, who was perhaps one of the most notable evangelical pastors, wrote books that tens of thousands were printed and many, including many in this room, read. Joshua Harris now says, I don't believe in heaven, and he certainly doesn't believe in hell. I just read this last week that Pope Francis now says that hell is not a conscious place. And socialist Democrat Sanders, who is uh, maybe running, maybe going to get the nomination for the Democrats, here's what he said. Do you think that people who are not Christians are condemned to hell? That belief is Islamophobic. His concept is if you're thinking that someone doesn't go to heaven because they don't trust Christ, you must hate the Muslim religion. The fact is, folks, it all boils down really to two false doctrines. The false doctrine, first of all, of annihilationism. Annihilationism simply says there's no life after death. People are like cats or like dogs, a slug, a worm. It makes no difference. When you're gone, you're gone. In common language, that's the end is the end philosophy. There's a second false doctrine, and that's the doctrine of universalism. Universalism is the opposite. They do believe in life after death. They just don't believe anybody goes to hell. Eventually, somehow, some way, God says, all right, no problem. We won't sweat the small stuff. Everybody gets to go to heaven. And there's many varieties of that, but that's basically what it comes down to. Either there's the group that says the end is the end, or commonly this one, everything works out in the end. That's the two philosophies. The end is the end, or it all works out in the end. And sadly, there are many believers who, Bible believers, or sadly, excuse me, many Christians, not Bible believers, who believe those thoughts. Now, what is the heart of this? Well, we're going to get into the heart of this subject next week as we begin to see all the, what hell is about and really uh, why the rich man was actually in hell. What actually put him there? There's a lot of debate about what hell is and where it goes and what's all about. You know, if you've been around, if you're very old at all, you know of Ted Turner. Ted Turner is a, uh, is a media giant. Uh, he is a self-proclaimed environmentalist. He is uh, an atheist. And uh, he's the one who famously said uh, Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Here's what he said at the National Press Club not too long ago. Heaven is going to be a mighty slender place. And most of the people I know in life aren't going to be there. There are new, a few notable exceptions, and I'll miss them. Laughter, laughter. Remember, heaven is going to be perfect, and I don't want to be there. And I don't really want to, those of us that go to hell, which will be most of us in this room, most journalists are certainly going to be in hell. <laughs> laughter, laughter. But when we get to hell, we'll have a chance to make things better, because hell is supposed to be a mess. And heaven perfect? Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, boring. The fact is, liberals and modernists can dismiss hell, but it's all a lie. There are five lies about hell answered by Jesus in Luke chapter 16. The first lie is this, hell is what you make of life here. 
It's just what you make of life here. I've heard that hundreds of times. I just believe hell is here. Hell is just on earth. Well, the answer from Jesus in Luke chapter 16, it says, he died, he buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. Now, his body went to the grave, but he was given a spirit body, a spirit body that somehow could feel pain, somehow had eyes, somehow could have a mind and thought process. Not sure how God does all that, but uh, I'm sure that's the same thing he does for the believer who the Bible says is absent from the body, but present with the Lord. We know in the book of Revelation, we read a few weeks ago, how that there are souls under the altar with robes on. This is a spirit body, but it had some space to it so that you could put a robe on it. And so here we find this man died and lifted up his eyes. No, there is an afterlife, and it is not this life. Very clearly, Jesus said, no, there is something more than this life. There's a second lie that people say about hell, and that is when you die, that is the end. That's the end. But the Bible very clearly says that in hell, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He definitely wasn't gone, or annihilationism. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer, uh, the tremendous uh, Christian apologist who uh, formerly an atheist, here's what he said. He was in a cemetery. He saw the epitaph on a, on a tombstone of a well-known person, a well-known atheist. And uh, the epitaph on the tombstone uh, said, all dressed and no place to go. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis said, I only, I'm sure he only wishes that were true. Every atheist that dies says, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just going to die. But you may say that, but that's not the way it works out. It says, in hell, they lifted up their eyes. There's a third lie that people say that's answered clearly here in Luke 16. Death is a place of no consciousness. Our Pope, worldwide Pope, said it's not a place of consciousness. But Jesus very clearly dismantled that. He said that he was in torment. That's pretty conscious. I don't believe that's no conscious. That's very conscious. That's something we certainly want to be away from. There's a fourth lie, and that is hell is a place that makes you ready for heaven. Now, I've had certainly heard that. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church is very clear that there's a place that you can purge out your sins. It's called purgatory. Back a thousand years ago or so, it was very atrocious because they sold what was called indulgences. That is, uh, you could pay your relative out of purgatory by giving. And uh, these uh, indulgences, as they called them, could help pay the way out of purgatory for someone who probably didn't make it in life. But uh, the Bible is very clear. It says in verse 26 that between heaven and hell, which we'll read next week, but you can look at it now. It says in verse 26, between heaven and hell, there is a great gulf fixed, meaning nobody has ever been able to pass because of this great gulf. No one's ever passed from hell to heaven. It's never happened. And it won't happen because there's no such thing as purgatory. As someone said, there's no exit signs in hell. Then there is a fifth lie of the evil one, 
And that is that hell is a place where departed souls communicate with their loved ones on earth. There is a huge rise of occultism in America today. And there's so many people that are going back to the paganism of Rome and early England days and other things like that. The fact is they feel like, uh, and they call them spiritualists, which is actually not an accurate word. It's spiritist. A spiritual person is one who has a Christ in their heart, and they are close to the Holy Spirit and invited Him into their life. These type of people feel like somehow we'd be able to uh, communicate with the dead. And, but in verse 27, uh, the rich man was in hell, and he asked that somehow someone would go communicate with his loved ones. But the Bible says it couldn't happen. No, there's no communication once a person is gone. And people say, oh, so-and-so came and spoke to me, my uncle or my aunt, or no, it doesn't happen that way. It's just sorry. It's not going to happen. And we, uh, those who want that to happen, it's clearly from Scripture, it is a forever choice. Henry David Thoreau, who, if you go to any of these national parks or just about any park around in California, you'll find quotes by Henry David Thoreau. He was America's original environmentalist. He was an anarchist. He uh, fought against um, our government, and, uh, but he, of course, became the, uh, the hero of the humanist because he was willing to fight against religion, you know, the, the uh, draconian concepts of religion. He had a friend, however, who was a minister, a Christian. And when Henry David Thoreau was on his deathbed, His friend asked him, do you know where you're going in the next world, friend? And it is said that he waved him off and said, one world at a time, one world at a time. I was talking with a man long ago, a very successful man, and uh, I began to quote Jesus, talk about heaven. He said, "Ah, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago, meaning that's another world ago. That was not something we need to worry about today. But the fact is, folks, we need to uh, think about that. Imagine a person saying, you know, uh, one world at a time. They're going to get on a plane. They live in Florida. They're going to get on a plane bound for Alaska, and they make no preparation. I mean, they're wearing their Bermuda shorts and their Hawaiian shirt and say, you know, one world at a time. Then they're going to arrive in Alaska, and they're going to freeze to death. That'd be the same way with us, saying, you know, one world at a time, I'll deal with that when it comes. Folks, that's not wisdom. That's a fool. That's a foolish person. I'll close with this story here this morning. There was a dying man who gathered his four children around him. He had four of them. And as he lay there, he was able to speak. To three of them, he said these words. He said, I love you, and good night. And then he turned to his fourth child and said, I love you, son, goodbye. The young man said, Dad, I, I don't understand. Why did, why did you say good night to my brothers and sister? Why did you say goodbye to me? The dying man answered, because... Son, they are Christians, and I'll see them. I'll see them soon, only minutes, really. But you have not trusted Christ. 
And unless you do, I will never see you again. Friend, it is a, it is a terrible thing to make a choice, a foolish thing to not prepare one world at a time. Mr. Thoreau said, no, we need to think about the next world. I read a true story coming from 911, 9-11. On the morning of September 11th, it really uh, I was fascinated by what the concept of urgency does for the mind and the heart of a believer. And you know, it's an interesting thing about the topic of hell. For me, it makes me so grateful for the love of God. It makes me so excited about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But I'll tell you another thing. It makes me, again, realize the authority of Scripture. I'm not trusting Mr. Turner or Mr. Thoreau or Beethoven or whoever else. No, we're trusting in what Jesus says and what he said goes. But there's one thing that just really speaks to me, and that is we need to tell people, folks, this is an urgent situation. On the morning of September 11th, Jeannie Bracca switched on the television to check the weather report only to hear that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. Her husband, Al, worked at a corporate trader for Cantor Fitzgerald. The office was on the 105th floor of Tower One. He had survived the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, even helped a woman escape from the building. And she knew that he would probably try to do the same thing here, but I never thought for a minute he would be never coming home. A week later, like so many others who were in that building, Al's body was found in the rubble. Al's wife, Jeannie, and his son, Christopher, of course, were devastated. The reports began to trickle in from friends and acquaintances. Some people on the 105th floor had made a last call or sent an email to loved ones saying that a man was leading people in prayer and telling them about Jesus. And they gave his name. His name was Al. Al. Al's family learned that he, in fact, had been ministering to people during the attack and realized they were all trapped. He began to share the gospel with 50 co-workers and led them in the sinner's prayer. For years, he had been praying for the salvation of these men and women. And according to Jeannie, he really didn't like his job. He couldn't stand the environment. But it was a world so out of touch with Christians, he just said, I'm the only light they have. And he was convinced that God wanted him to stay there. He was a light in the darkness. And there in those closing moments, when heaven or hell was facing each one of them, he said, choose Christ now. Choose him now at this moment. Sad when you look at this story. Here's this rich man. Here he was. In the last seconds of his life, he still rejected Jesus. He had it all on this life. But in the afterlife, he had absolute misery. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.